All right, well, good, good morning, Grace Church. Glad you're here. And if you're visiting with us online, we're g- grateful for you as well. So today I want to start with a question. What difference does being a Christ follower make in the times that you and I are living? So what's the big deal? Why, why do I need Christ now? And I answer that question by simply saying, what you and, all, you and I both need is the idea of hope. We need hope in our life. So let's talk about that amazing word. When I have hope in my life, it's not just hope that things are going to get better. It's, that's not it at all. Uh, the truth is, is that we have no guarantee of the future, but here's what I do know. I do know that my best days are yet to come, and I know that because of the promise of eternal life. And the fact is, is that my worst days may come on this planet, but my best days are yet to come because I'm going to live forever and ever and ever because of the power of the resurrection. So where I want to go today for just a few minutes is I want to talk about God's sustaining power and, and through, this, through this resurrection. So to be able to do that, I need to share with you my story. So uh, I'm just going to be honest with you. I was, I was not raised in church. In fact, the only time that I was ever taken to church was uh, out of a sense of guilt, my parents thinking somehow, probably because I was a bad boy, that's probably why, but uh, they, they figured they needed to take me to church, so I, they took me down, to, I was living in a small town, they took me down to the, this little tiny church and dropped me off at the front door and told me they'd pick me up in an hour, and so as I walked through the door, I'll never forget this experience as if it was happening yesterday, just happened yesterday, there was this lady that I called the church lady. I had never, I'd never had any experience in church whatsoever, and she was a Sunday school teacher, and uh, so she comes up to me and says, hey, you know, what's your name? And I, and I told her, and she said, well, guess what? Next weekend, you're going to be involved in a play. We're going to be doing a play in front of the big church, and you're going to be this character. And she, I named some biblical character, and uh, I said, well, uh, thanks, but no thanks. I walked out that day of church, and uh, I didn't come back. I, I went home that day, and I told my parents, listen, I am just going to, I'm, I, I'm not going to come back to church. And so that was so, you know, such a powerful moving moment in my life. Could you have them turn the volume down in here for just a second? It's going to drive me crazy. Sorry, time out. So I was um, in this experience where, where I went home that day and I said, listen, I just don't want to go back to church. And if you make me, I'll run away. That was the only time, that was the only time that that ever worked from that moment forward. Uh, I just said, I'm not going back to church, and they bought it, and I didn't. So I wasn't raised in the church. I had a little bit of, I had a little influence in my life of Christianity, but the truth is, is that I, I didn't come to Easter services. I didn't come to Christmas services. I didn't come to any services, and as I grew up, when I got into high school, I started drinking, and I had somewhat of a drinking problem. When I got to Nevada, I came here to come to the University of Nevada, and in that process of coming to Nevada, I pledged a fraternity that was known for fighting and drinking and womanizing, and, and that's who I became. And I lived that lifestyle out for several years. And then w- there was an event that happened that changed my life, and, and uh, that was that my, my high school sweetheart uh, moved back to Reno. She had, when she graduated from high school, I even hate to say this, I can't hardly say these words out loud, she went to Boise State. And so she was there for a couple years, and then she decided to move back. And uh, so we reconnected, we started dating, and eventually we got married, and, uh, but I was still a pagan, and uh, I didn't want to have anything to do with church. And my wife, Judy, had this friend, her name was Kathy Begby, Howard and Kathy Begby live here in Reno, and uh, she had this friend, they were born in the same hospital together, 
and uh, they, you know, they are friends. And so Kathy began to call Judy and invite her to church. It was a little, you know, just a little aggressive. I'm just going to say it was a little aggressive. We love them today, but I'm telling you, when I was a pagan, I didn't much like it. I mean, they were calling us all the time. And so on one particular week, they called us and they said, uh, you know, we have a pot potluck down at our church on Friday night. Would you like to come? So Judy puts her hand over the phone. That's in the, those, the old days when you actually could do that, you know, when you could put your hand over a phone. And uh, so she put her hand over the phone and said, hey, they want, they're having this potluck down at the church, and they want to know if we want to come. And I have no idea why I said this. I really don't. I don't know why I said these words, but this is what I said to my wife. You tell her that we're going to go to church this Sunday, but we're not going to come to any stinking potluck. And I don't think I used the word stinking there. Uh, it was probably a different word. And uh, so my wife put the you know, hand off the receiver and told her probably just about that way, we're not going to come to your potluck, but we're going to come to church on Sunday. So I did. I was a pagan, but I was a pagan in my words. So we got up the next day or Sunday and uh, we got into my old pickup truck. I was a college student, had this old pickup truck, drove down to the church, a little tiny church. And what I didn't realize is that you had to wear a uniform in this particular church. I, I mean, I didn't get it in those days. I walked in, and so I had, you know, long hair, and uh, I was just in Levi's and a T-shirt, and everybody else in the building was in a suit. And uh, that was a little awkward. That was my next experience with church. First experience with church is I walked in and they say, you're going to be in a play. Next experience I had in church is they said, uh, I walked in and they, and they were all dressed up and I'm going, I just don't belong here. So we, I, I was going to stick it out. So we stuck it out. That week, the pastor had been gone all week. He had been uh, at a conference and he had a planned sermon that he was going to do. So this is what happened. He gets home about 11, 12 o'clock at night on a Saturday night. And God just starts speaking to him. And as he speaks to him, uh, you know, bottom line, he, he, he writes a new message out. And this new message is, uh, the title of this message, I'll never forget, it's why multitudes go to hell. And every point was a point that my wife and I had personally discussed. You know how, you know, unbelievers sometimes sit around, they drink a little wine, and they get religious, and they talk about religious things. And so that was kind of this, this God that I began to have an encounter with knew everything about me, and it absolutely scared the daylights out of me. The pastor that day gave an invitation to receive Christ, and uh, I, I, you know, I white-knuckled the, you know, the chair in front of me. I'm no way am I going forward in front of all these church people and, and invite Jesus into my life. And uh, so we get in my truck, we start driving home, about halfway home, we didn't say a word. Judy and I didn't say a word to each other. We just started driving. And about halfway home, we looked at each other and we said, we got to go back. So I turned my truck around and we went back to the church and, and, um, and they were all gone. And so we drove home and we called Kathy back up and we said, hey, we'd like to talk to that preacher guy. And so she made a couple calls for us, and, and the, eventually the pastor showed up that afternoon, and my wife and I both got down on our knees that day, and we received Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. Uh, I always tease her and say I was saved first because I meant it first, but I'm sure, I'm sure she probably got saved first actually in reality. But the truth is we got saved together. It was an amazing thing. And thank you, Kathy, for being so persistent in that process of being a witness for Jesus. 
And so that was 43 years ago. That's what happened in my life 43 years ago. And I'm just going to tell you, that was then and this is now. So the question that I want to deal with for just a few minutes, so why do I still believe? I mean, this is what happened. God ambushed me with His love. I wasn't expecting it. I didn't expect, when I went to church that day, I expected to just sit through church, endure it, walk out and do my obligation and go on my merry way, and I'd still have my deal with God. God, I won't mess with you and you don't mess with me. That's the deal I had with God. And uh, it would be, a, it would have just have been a beautiful thing. But God ambushed me with His love that day and He changed my life forever. I wasn't religious. I'm not religious today. I'm just in a relationship with God based upon this amazing love. So, 43 years later, let's fast forward the story. So, why do I still believe? Why do I still believe? Well, I think there's several reasons I believe, but let me give you just four of them today and uh, see if these resonate with you. First of all, the reason that I believe is because there is still an empty tomb. That stands forever. That empty tomb is so amazing. There's a passage found in the the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24, and verse 1 through 3, and it says this, But on the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And they would never find it. And they were said, why are you seeking, why are you seeking the, uh, the, the dead among, why are, you see, why are you seeking this? He's living. He's not dead. He is not dead anymore. And that began a revolution that took place in that day. And it was so amazing. Dr. Paul Mayer, a professor of ancient history at Western Michigan University, secular university, did this amazing study. And uh, this is what his conclusion was. Accordingly, if all the evidence is weighed carefully and fairly, it is, it is indeed justifiable to conclude that Jesus' tomb was empty on the morning of the first Easter. And then he went on to write this. And there is not a thread of evidence that has ever been discovered in literary sources or archaeology that would disprove that statement. So secular studies show that Jesus Christ was indeed risen from the dead. Now compare this. Now think about that. Think about the empty tomb for just a minute and think about this. In 1922, Howard Carter made what was probably the greatest archaeological discovery in the history of man when he found the ancient tomb of King Tut. And it took him about eight years to excavate it. And it was a miracle because almost all of the other graves in that region had been robbed by grave robbers, but they found this intact. They authenticated it. It took them about eight years to excavate everything that needed to be excavated. And then what they did is they sent his body all over the world and all these artifacts all over the world. And this is what was so amazing. Thousands and thousands and thousands of people stood in line for hours to see this dead king. And as I think about that, I'm just thinking to myself, man, the dude is dead. Why would you stand in line for hours and hours and hours to watch somebody or look at somebody that's dead? And that event had absolutely no significance on my life. That dead king is still dead. He's always going to be dead. He's never going to come alive. That is just a dead king. It has no bearing on your life or my life, and yet thousands of people. I was in Canada several years back, and I saw the exhibition. I saw that where it was, and, and uh, it went all over the world, and thousands of people put, put big money down, and they walked in to look at something that had no bearing on their life whatsoever. Now, compare that to this empty tomb 2,000 years ago when Jesus Christ comes from the dead, 
It's what separated him from every other prophet, every other world religious leader, is the fact that he came out of that grave. And that is why, that's one of the reasons that I still believe, because that, impact, that has an impact on my life, because he offers to me the power of the resurrection. There's a second reason that I still believe, and that is because of the eyewitness accounts in that era in that time. The New Testament writers documented that over a period of 40 days, Jesus appeared alive at least a dozen different times to over 500 people, 515 people witnessed, looked at Him, saw Him, some touched Him, and saw the fact that He was alive and He wasn't dead. Now, if you think about how significant that is, in a courtroom, if you have two to three witnesses, that's enough to convict somebody of any crime that they, they've ever committed. You just bring a couple of witnesses in, and by their eyewitness account, you're likely to get a conviction. Now, you think about the eyewitnesses of Jesus. Imagine a courtroom here, and we're going to listen to all of the eyewitnesses' accounts, 515 eyewitnesses' accounts of the resurrection. Let me put that in perspective for you. That is so important because that is 129 hours of testimony if everyone testified for just 15 minutes. That would be like starting on Monday morning at 8 o'clock and going all the way around the clock, all the way to Saturday night at 8 o'clock. I mean, it's, it's astounding how much eyewitness account there is of Jesus Christ. And it is, it's an amazing fact. That's why I still believe, because of the eyewitnesses. And here's something that else, there's another reason I believe. Uh, it's the fact that the disciples had this amazing transformation. When they came to arrest Jesus, the bottom line is, is that most of them fled that evening. They ran and they began to cower. They, were, they, came, they, they went from being fearful and cowering men who ran to being powerful witnesses, eyewitnesses accounts of the resurrection. Bold and confident in their proclamation, not caring what the consequences were. So something happened in that, in that time span. And that, what, that ha what happened was, is the resurrection. And every conceivable method was used against them to stop them from talking. Yet they laid their lives down as the ultimate proof of their complete confidence in the truth of the resurrection. And then you think for the next 2,000 years, thousands and thousands, millions of people have given their life over to Jesus. They have confessed Him. They have embraced the truth of the resurrection. And they have had transformed lives. Addicts have been set free, murders, rapists. Thieves, liars, all been set free by this person, Jesus, who resurrected from the dead. And the worst of all, the self-righteous have been set free and made, made new. If there's any one particular sin that stands out of all of them, I want you to hear me. I want you to lean in a little bit into this. If there's one sin that stands out, it is the, it's the sin of self-righteousness. The idea that somehow that I don't need a Savior is the most heinous crime there ever was when you think about what Christ went through on the cross. Sinners of all sorts have been found freedom from sin and death, and that is an amazing witness to the, to the reality of the resurrection. And then there's the existence of the church. 2,000 years of church history, armies have marched against the name of Jesus. Dictators have tried to extinguish it, and yet it still exists. The church is thriving. Even in the midst of a pandemic in the world today, the church is thriving, not cowering back, thriving in the midst of that. And because the church is made up of humans and led by human humans, the fact is, is that 
it would be absolutely miraculous for the church not to implode. I mean, here's the deal. Come on. Let's just talk about it in reality. The truth is, is that Christians say and do really stupid things, don't they? I mean, let's just be honest. 2,000 years of church history, there have been a lot of stupid things, stupid acts that Christians have done in the name of Jesus, and yet the church still exists today. It hasn't imploded. It's a powerful witness of, of who Christ is. So that is why I believe. I believe because of an empty tomb. I believe because of the eyewitness accounts. I believe because of transformed lives. And I believe because of the existence of the church. That's why, that's what sustained me for 43 years of belief. And I want to end with this thought. I want, to, I want you to think about this. There was a guy by the name of Richard Swinburne, and he is a professor of philosophy at Oxford University. And he used the formula known as the Bayes' theorem, very famous theorem, to calculate the probability of Jesus' death on the cross and the resurrection. So, as he did, finished his calculations, this is what he came up with. He came up with the fact that there is a 97% probability that Jesus rose from the dead. 97%. So, the question excuse me, that I would ask you is that are you willing to risk your eternity for 3%? Are you willing to risk your eternity for the 3% probability that it might not be true? That is a pretty big gamble for you to take. The resurrection proves that the claims of Jesus that He made while He's here on the planet are true. It, it, the resurrection of Jesus Christ validates every promise that Jesus has ever made. The resurrection proves that God will judge the world one day in righteousness, that He's going to right wrongs, that He's going to establish His kingdom, that everything He said He's going to do is wrapped up in one event, and that is this thing called the resurrection. The resurrection provides a genuine hope for eternal life. And eternal life isn't just about when I go to heaven. Eternal life is about now. It's about a quality of life. It's about what God is doing right now in the midst of my life. And then the hope that forever and ever and ever and ever that I'll have a, a, a home in heaven that's, that's designed with purpose and glory and joy in, in mind. So I, wanna, I want you to think about that, and then I want to ask you this question. So if Christ didn't raise from the dead, what's the big deal about that? If Christ did not raise from the dead, so what's the big deal? Well, Paul addressed that issue in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and this is what he says, and if Christ has not been raised, uh, raised from the dead, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. See, I, if Christ didn't raise from the dead, you wasted the last hour of your time. Your religious pursuit is a waste of time if Christ didn't rise from the dead. But if He did, it's a game changer. It's a game changer. And what God wants from your life is that He wants a relationship. He doesn't want you to become a religious person. He wants a relationship. And He wants to, have, he wants to give you this sustaining power in your life every day. He wants you to have a testimony that 43 years from today, you're still believing that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. That's the power of the resurrection. So what we're going to do is we're going to give you an opportunity to believe on that and uh, give you an, an opportunity to respond. So <clears throat> let's, let's start with the idea. So where do, where, what do I go? where do I go? What do I do? What's the first thing that I need to do? Well, the reality is, is that you need to start with this idea that you are a sinner. You can't escape that. You've missed the mark. And maybe that mark for your life has just been the fact that you're self-righteous, that you don't think you have a need. 
The Bible declares that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There's not, exception, there's not any exceptions. You're not the exception. You have sinned. And there's, no, there's nothing you can do to atone for your own sin. There's nothing. You can't figure out how to help little old ladies across the street for the next 30 years to somehow, some way make a difference in your eternal life. The fact is that somebody else had to do it for you. And that person was Jesus. So we start with why Jesus came to begin with, and that was to die for your sins. Your, your sins. Your sins. And that Good Friday experience, that Good Friday event was for you. It was because you couldn't be made right in the sight of God outside of acknowledging your sinfulness. And then a payment had to be made. And that payment was made on the cross, this excruciating crucifixion that Jesus willingly submitted himself to. And then went to the grave. And then on that third day, came out of that grave. And so the bottom line for you is, is it starts with the idea, starts with the idea that you have a need, you can't meet that need, and you once and for all surrender to God and, and pray to Him. So what I'm going to ask you to do, even though this might be weird in your home, what I'm going to ask you to do is to close your eyes and bow your head and uh, pretend you're sitting right in front of me in this auditorium and we're just talking and I want to lead you in a prayer but here's the deal you've got to be sincere in what you want you've got to be you have to be sincere with God if you mean business with God God will mean business with you and if you'll just now humble yourself before God and pray with me a prayer that goes something like this dear Lord Jesus I confess that I've sinned before your sight and I confess that I don't have the capability of fixing myself. And so today, because of the resurrection, I confess that Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior. I put my confidence in His work. I put my trust in His work. And from this day forward, I choose to pick up my cross and daily follow Him. Now, if you prayed that prayer, I want you, I want you to, first of all, I want, well, I want you to look at me now, and uh, I want to just talk to you. I want you to look at the screen, and I want to just say a few words to you. What you just did was the most important thing that you could ever do in life, more important than your birth, more important than your marriage, more important than anything else that you could do, because what happened here was a transaction. God took your sins and nailed them to the cross and he took his righteousness and he imparted it unto your life and starting from this day you're going to see a difference and here's the difference you're going to see is that, that same, in that same transaction God sent forth his spirit in your life so now the spirit of God lives inside of you the spirit of God now resides in you forever and ever God seals you and from this day forward, this is what's going to happen. I'm just going to tell you, this is what's going to happen. When you sin, and you will, the Spirit will be there whispering to you and saying, repent, turn back to me. He's going to lead you. You're going to find the leadership of the Holy Spirit. And here's what else you're going to find, is that when you surrender to Christ every day, you're going to find the power of the resurrection in your life. 
And that is something that money cannot buy. That's the hope. That's the sustaining power of the resurrection. So this event 2,000 years ago wasn't just an excuse to give us an opportunity to have chocolate on Easter. It was the event that set in motion 2,000 years of church history. The event that sealed every promise that Jesus ever made. The event that gives me confidence to live in the midst of a crisis-oriented world. It's the event that gives me the confidence to get up every day and know that my God is still on the throne. My God is not dead. He's alive. He's alive forevermore. And I'm telling you, He has the power in His hands to do whatever He chooses to do. God is on the move. And here's the beautiful thing. God wants to move with you. He wants to invite you in what He's doing. And that is priceless. So let me pray for you. So Father, I thank you for this day. And I thank you for the truth of the resurrection, God. And I pray, God, that your spirit will work in everyone's life. To the church, God, I pray that we would have more confidence than ever to know that you're in control. And for those that just prayed with me today, God, I pray that you'll take their lives and use them in a way that only you can. God, we love you today. Thank you that you have given us this great truth and this great promise. And I pray these things in Jesus' holy and powerful and awesome name. Amen.